Please be seated. As we come to God's word, let's wait on him um, as we ask him to open it to us. Lord God, you are our light and our salvation, and may we dwell in your presence this morning. May we wait for you that we may be changed people, and may go out resembling your Son even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we come uh, to Psalm 27, you may have uh, a Bible or something with you. Um, If you don't, don't worry, but we're going to go through the passage, um, basically verse by verse, to see what the psalmist is trying to share with us um, through this psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. Um, The prefix before the the psalm begins says a psalm of David. Um, If you ever see this in, in the Bible, it, it may mean a psalm written by David. It may mean <clears throat> a psalm composed by David. It may mean a psalm composed for David. He may have commissioned um, musicians in his court to write these psalms for him. <clears throat> the, sa- the, pre- the prefix for um, a psalm of David sort of more resembles the word for or to, um, but certainly it's a psalm in the, in the time of David commissioned by him or written by him. And this psalm, um, 27, opens with a really strong and really powerful verse. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If the Lord is our light, well, what does light do? It's the means by which we see anything around us. And in the same way, the Lord is the means by which we should see the world. He's the lens through which we should interpret our whole lives. Should we face good things? or bad things, we should interpret these things in the context of who God has revealed himself to be through Scripture. And what is that? Well, he's revealed himself to be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-benevolent or all-good, all-forgiving, all-caring. He is the one who made the whole of creation and redeemed the whole of creation through the sacrifice of his Son. And he is the one who will bring about a new creation again. The problem in our lives is that we tend to do the reverse. We look at our situations, our experience, and we read God through the lens of our experience rather than the other way around. For example, if we are experiencing difficult circumstances, then we say, well, God mustn't be good. But that's not what the psalmist is saying to us here. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see everything by it. And we should do everything through this lens. Um, There's a theme in systematic theology called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. um, And this is just a, a, a concept created by John Wesley. And it's the idea of these four defining features which tell us of who God is. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Scripture is the main way we can know God. We experience him through what he has revealed himself to be through Scripture. Tradition, and so the church, reveals to us um, a little bit more. And we 
are about to say the Apostles' Creed together. The Apostles' Creed isn't explicitly in Scripture, but it is informed by Scripture and was given to us through tradition. Reason is the next thing that that helps us to understand God. And so we look at the world and we can say there must be a design to this complex world because we we must be a designer because we see a design. And when we, we come to that conclusion through reason, and the last thing is experience. Through our day to day experience of God, we can know who He is. But all of these things are spoken into by Scripture. And our problem is we start the other way around. We look at our experience and we let it, let it tell us, well, I've experienced difficult things in the church, so the church must be bad, or I have experienced difficult things in life, so God must be bad. I wonder if we could ask ourselves in our situations, what is this situation in light of who God is, not the other way around? Think in Scripture where we have characters such as Moses in front of the Red Sea, Joshua and Caleb going to enter the Promised Land, or Paul experiencing persecution and beatings because of his following of God. And each of these people were able to look at these difficult circumstances in the light of who God has revealed himself to be. These giants for Joshua and Caleb weren't so big in the light of an all-powerful God. And, and this is only verse 1. Verse 1 also says, God is my salvation. The word here in Hebrew is um, Yesha, which is where we get the name Yeshua, which is Jesus in, in Hebrew. God is our saving, our salvation, and Jesus means the one who saves. And even in verse 1, we can see the whole of our lives in the light of our all-powerful God, and the story of salvation that Jesus has given us, who came to show us how to live, saved us from our lives of sin, and died to make a way for us to be back with God, and saved us from the consequences and punishment of sin. And in light of these things, the writer of the psalm says, the Lord is my stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? He's the one in which we dwell in day and night. Jesus is also the person in whom we dwell as he is our stronghold. All of our Christian lives should be lived in this strong tower. We will um, visit this later on in the passage as well as he talks about dwelling in the Lord's temple. Verse 2, we acknowledge that all of our enemies, whether people or powers, will eventually stumble in this world. Even COVID will be overcome by God. And the, and the psalm says, When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. And we know that God will overcome all of our enemies in this world. The psalmist goes on to say that the psalmist doesn't even fear his enemies who are literally surrounding him because he sees them in the light of who God is. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. But where does the psalmist get this lens from? Obviously through scripture. Um, The psalmist didn't have as much scripture as we have. He gets it from dwelling in God's presence. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. 
for the psalmist, for David, this was the tabernacle rather than the temple. And this was where all people of Israel needed to go to go into the presence of God. They needed to go to a physical place at a physical time to experience God. Not that God was um, subject to that param- the parameters of being in that space, but he came to meet with the Israelites in that space. And in this way, we have a better way. Now, I want to watch a little video together. Um, I was going to talk about this this morning, but this video explains this a lot better than me. This talks about God's presence or the theme of the temple throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, And it will um, chat to us a little bit more about this theme where he says he could dwell in the presence of the Lord. And we'll pick up again um, after the video. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon. And they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol. And it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches in seven days after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2, and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, God. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, They wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the garden and temple. And, like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple, with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. 
But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple, and this new temple would expand out and include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become many temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but a people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So, at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building, because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. And that video can explain it a lot better than I can, where the presence of God is in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's in the tabernacle with the people of Israel. He's in the temple with the people as they settle into the land and again in the rebuilt temple after the exile. And then God is with us in the person of Emmanuel, Jesus. And Jesus said that it would be better that he would leave because the presence of God would then come and live with us. And so we are better off than those people in the Old Testament who experienced these things because we dwell in the presence of God at any time in any place because the curtain is torn in two. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two to, to symbolize that God was moving out into the world to be with us wherever we can be. And the psalmist says in the midst of all of these difficult situations where his enemies are literally surrounding him, he says, what does he need? What does he want? He wants to dwell in God's presence. He doesn't want the answers. He wants the one who can give him the answers. Imagine if in a relationship, in a friendship, a marriage, in a relationship between uh, your, you and your parents or a friend, that we would only go to them if we needed something from them. So we ask, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? Can you, can you, can you get me that thing? Imagine if that was the relationship we had with these people who we were close to. And yet a lot of the time, this is our relationship with God. We only come to him when we need something. And so in that, if this was the psalmist, he would say, God, help me with this situation. Help me with his enemies. God, would you overcome these enemies? Where instead, the psalmist says, Lord, the one thing I need is to dwell in your presence. Imagine if that was our New Year's resolution this year, and I think it would be the most powerful one we ever made, was to seek God and to dwell in his presence every day. This perspective would completely change every circumstance. When we can raise our heads out of the mire because we are um, immersed in the experience of dwelling in God's presence. Not and experiencing God's joy, not necessarily just because we are happy, but because we have God's peace, contentment, a deeper wholeness felt in God, because we can praise him even in these circumstances. And so the, the psalmist goes on to say, this is my confidence, Lord. This is my prayer. 
He says that my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At this sacred tent, I will sacrifice and shout for joy. I will sing and make music to God. And so he comes into God's presence and says an honest prayer. After having sought God for who he is, he then comes with his requests. Pete Gregg, in his book, How to Pray, has a very helpful acronym of thinking about how we should approach God when praying. And he uses the word prayer for the acronym. Um, We pause, rejoice, ask, and then yield. And so the psalmist here, he pauses in God's presence. He dwells with God. He rejoices for who, who God is. He says, God, you are great because of who you are. And then he brings his request. He says, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek my heart says of you, seek his face, and your, your face, Lord, I will seek. And he goes on to speak his prayer to God. It's a very helpful way of thinking how we may approach God this um, week and this year ahead, that we would pause in God's presence, taking a deep breath, letting his presence come and be with us, rejoicing, thinking of at least five, six, ten things that we can th- praise God for, re- thank him for, and then bring our requests to him. And finally, we yield. We say, God, all of these requests, I thank you for them, and I give them to you. The psalmist is really honest in verse, um, nine, verses 9 and 12. He honestly gives God his, his feelings, and God can cope with how we're really feeling in any situation. He already knows, and, and you can see that throughout all of the psalms, throughout the Psalter, if you see the the different prayers of lament and anguish and praise that are seen in the Psalms, God can take our honest prayers and wants us to to approach him even in these difficult times or in the good times. In verse 10, it says, even um, though a father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. In Isaiah 49, verse 14, it says, Can a mother forget a baby at her breast? Have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget. And so if our friends, our acquaintances, our our families, our work colleagues abandon us, we know that God will never abandon us. He will never leave us or forsake us. The psalmist knows in, in verse 11, that one of the things that they need to do when facing all of these things is to lead a blameless life so that the anguish from within doesn't um, add to the anguish from without. Lives directed by God's word and trained in our minds and in our hearts to follow God. He says, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in your path because because of my oppressors. To train our hearts and minds to the truth that God is good and that we need to live lives of holiness. Leviticus 21 verse 8 says we should be holy because God is holy. So much more important than how we are acclaimed, how our reputation is. So much more important than how much money we have, how many things we have in the house, how many followers we have is to pursue holiness. So much more important even than how good we are as parents or as family members to pursue holiness so that we can love them better and we can love God better. So verse 13, we come back to this confidence. I remain confident of this, 
but I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Even in the midst of his desperate prayer, he says, God, I will see your goodness. Interesting that he says, I know you will do this. I remain confident, I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. He doesn't say, I know you'll answer my prayer. He says, I know you will answer your, your prayer. You will answer your goodness. That he will see his goodness, whether in an answer yes to his prayer or not. And he finishes with, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. What does this look like? Well, it means in every situation, it means sitting, and not in every situation, but in our lives, giving space to sit in silence in God's presence, to pause and be with him. It means trusting as you wait for an answer that God is good, whether the answer is yes, no, or wait. It means practicing the presence of God as we dwell in his presence every day, as we saw in that video. So I'd like to just spend some time waiting on God this morning to use that acronym pause as we pray to him and ask him to be with us in all of our circumstances. So let's wait on God this morning together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross, that we may come into your presence at any time, that the curtain is torn in two, that the, the temple is open for all of us to come and be with you. Thank you that you are our light and that we can see the world so differently through who you are. Thank you that you are our salvation from our current sins and from our, the consequences and punishment for our sin, that you are our salvation. Help us in this new year not to think of how we could better ourselves physically or financially or in this physical world, Lord, but help us to see how we could better ourselves in dwelling in your presence. Would you help us to seek you for who you are and not just what you can give us? And would you help us to yield all of these things to you as you lead, love, and guide us? In Jesus' name, amen.